there really is in me, I know it might be sometimes hard to, to, to see, but a, a little bit of a hopeless romantic, and I, I ultimately blame my mom for this. Uh, she made me watch a lot of Hallmark movies when I was growing up. Made me. Uh, still to this day, I, I can't turn down a good rom-com, and it just brings back all the warm fuzzies from the past. Now, when you watch these movies, what you'll notice is there's always a, a common element, or at least often, and in these movies, what you'll find is there's usually some point in this story where there is a grand romantic gesture. There's some kind of display of the love of the man for the woman in which all of a sudden there's like, here is proof that I love you. And she's like, I didn't know before, but this just clarifies everything. I remember one uh, movie that perhaps you have seen one of the most iconic grand gestures in movies happened in a movie by the name of Say Anything, where Diane's dad says that she can't hang out with Lloyd anymore. So he shows up at this climactic moment outside her window, far away where he can't get shot by dad. And he holds up this boom box that's just blaring a love song. And as it's blasting it, it's just declaring his love for her. Grand gesture. Now, some of you are like, what's a boombox? Think, think an iPhone that's like 20 pounds heavier with speakers, right? And he's just holding it up, blasting his love for this girl. Well, it kind of makes sense when you see these moments. You know, the, the woman usually that the man is looking at, he, he, he is brought to her, compelled to her because of her beauty, usually both inside and out. If it was just out, it wouldn't make a good movie. There's usually character development so that you see the, the inward draw, the love of the heart. And then this gesture demonstrates and proves a man's love for a woman. Well, this morning we're looking at Romans 5, 6 to 11. Back in Romans, where Paul is so far declared that the cross, and we're going to see this this morning, the cross is the grand gesture that proves God's other worldly love for us. In other words, every earthly love, the, the greatest examples that we can conjure up, they all pale in comparison. They are all a little bit off the mark of the unique kind of love that God has demonstrated at the cross. It was there that he held up his symbol, his display of his great love for his people. And that cross, of course, was more than just a grand gesture. It was actually a cross that effectively saved the people and brought them to himself. And so we find that Paul is heralding this this morning. See, Paul is shifting his focus in Romans 5 to 8, as we saw last week, from showing how sinners are saved from God's wrath by faith alone to a hopeful reality that is ours in Christ. And so as we look at Romans 5 to 8, we're looking at some of the most hopeful chapters in all of the Bible, talking about who we are and what is ours in Christ, what it has brought to us who are a people of faith. Now, there are some of the most encouraging chapters, but you'll remember that we just left off in Romans 5, 5 last week, where Paul emphasizes the subjective experience the Christian has of the love of God. Love, verse 5. Paul, there again, you'll remember, he says this, hope does not 
put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I mean, those, those words, we could preach on those words for years, and so we do. But the cross is more than a grand gesture. Uh, for one, God's love is both qualitatively and quantitatively different than the greatest human loves that humanity can point to throughout history and art. And add to that that God pours his divine love into the hearts of his people by the power of the Holy Spirit, which regenerates them and enlightens them to love as God loves. See, that's something that we sense and feel. Verse 5 is is giving us pictures of something that you can't imagine would not stir and motivate and move the affections of every human who experienced the Holy Spirit and the love of God. But what do you do when you don't feel or sense the love of God? I'm wondering this morning if you've ever questioned God's love for you. Ever had a moment of doubt, a season of doubt, and you've wondered, does, does God, does he really love me? And that can take on all kinds of different forms, all kinds of different reasons can cause you to, to ask that question. But in Romans 5, 6 to 11, what we find is I think Paul is making a movement. He's moving from the subjective sense of the love of God to the objective proof of his love at the cross. So our big idea this morning, if you're taking notes, is this. It's that the logic of God's love at the cross leads to assurance both today and on the last day. We're going to be talking about the the logic of God's love at the cross and how it should give birth to assurance both today and on the last day. Now, first, we notice in verse 6 that Paul says that Christ died for us, and timing is everything. So if you look again with me in Romans, maybe in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Romans 5, verse 6. We're going to track what Paul has to say for us. Here's what he says. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Now the four that connects verses 5 and 6 is signaling that Paul is making that shift in focus from the subjective feeling in verse 5 to the objective ground in verse 6. And you'll notice that Paul is speaking about the way that God loved us while we were still weak. So you might ask yourself, what does weak mean? Because weak can be taken in a lot of different ways. Uh, Weak, as you look at it, and as I've studied this week, I, I would say that weak might actually not be weak enough. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. As you look at this word for weak, weak can be mean a number of different things, evoke a lot of different expectations when you read it. So, for instance, if I have weak coffee, uh, I'm expecting that that coffee still has maybe a little bit of caffeine in it. 
still does a little bit of a job, just not good enough of a job. If my phone battery is weak on my iPhone, which it seems to always be, then I still expect while it's weak for me to be able to make a phone call. Maybe not many, but I can at least reach out a little bit. But as I looked up this word in a number of different translations, I found that this is the strongest of the weak words that are used. In fact, when I looked at the New American Standard, uh, it uses the word helpless here. Uh, I looked over at the NIV, it uses helpless as well. Uh, I looked at the New Living Translation, it uses utterly helpless. There was powerless in there. And then I looked it up in one of my dictionaries uh, of New Testament theology, and they explained that Paul here views weakness in the sense not merely of a relative quantity, but rather of an unqualified inability. So when Paul says, while we were still weak, he's not talking about time when we could only help God a little bit. We could make the slightest move towards God to help ourselves. He's speaking of the time when we were utterly helpless. Uh, Captain Reagan from the show Blue Bloods. I told you I love to watch that show. G and I watch it. And I was watching it, and again, he was speaking to his priest, as he often does. And as he was talking to him, he threw out this line he's always using. He says, well, you know that God helps those who help themselves. And the priest doesn't respond. He just kind of looks at him and nods like, yeah, of course, everybody knows that. But here Paul says the gospel means that God helps the helpless. And Paul keeps at it as he's explaining. Notice he goes on to say, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, the perfectly righteous, eternal son of God, he took on flesh as our spirit-anointed king. Every hero that we can come up with, every hero that Marvel will ever create, pales in comparison to Jesus Christ, God's son. They all look weak next to him. But what does Paul mean by the right time, that he came at the right time? Well, some say it speaks of God's plan for Jesus to die. It's fitting in redemptive history, the way that he set forth to bring it about. Others look at it from the sense of those pitiful sinners saying that just in the nick of time, as they were almost over the cliff beyond, you know, retrieval, it's at that time that God saved the weak. Well, I was, I was looking at one of my commentators this week. It was super helpful, Tom Schreiner. He said, uh, we probably don't need to face, or, or we don't probably face here a false dilemma if we're thinking it needs to be one or the other. See, God not only planned when Christ would die, but also had in mind the people for whom his death would be effective. But don't miss Paul's point here. He's telling the church in Rome that from eternity's past, God determined to send his son to die for or in the place of sinners. He sacrificed himself. He, he came and stood in our place. He did this for us. And he did this before we made one movement towards seeking God's help. We didn't want it. We weren't looking for it, didn't know we needed it. And yet God initiated salvation for the helpless and the hopeless. There was nothing in us in that moment to warrant Jesus 
giving his life for us. The, the only thing that compelled God towards us was God and the great love with which he loved us. Does that make sense? Worldly loves usually make sense. When you look at an object of your affections, and there are likely a number of things that compel you to that person, but with God, it's almost as though we were like God repellent, and yet he pushed through to love us despite ourselves. I think that's the image that Paul wants us to see. Catch this. You might feel like your sense of the love of God has grown dim this morning. I'm guessing that that's something that you day in and day out are fighting to continue to stir up in your heart and in your soul. And you find that if you just leave it alone, it's not going to get warm towards God, right? You've got to work towards that. And all kinds of things can cause you to feel distant from God. Sometimes it feels like the whole world is full of devices and uh, means by which to sort of distract us from the love of God. I mean, just think about it. You probably have talked to people even this last week, perhaps, like I have, who told me they just weren't feeling it spiritually. So what do you do when you're just not feeling it spiritually, not feeling a love for God like you want to, and you want to stir that up? I think that's a really good time to take a spiritual inventory. Consider your heart, where it is that you are spiritually, what's driving you. There, there are some things that'll make us feel, uh, feel far from God. At least that's been my experience. I think that's what I see in the scriptures. Uh, you might ask yourself a number of questions. Like, am I living in sin right now? Have you ever been in a place where you know that you're, you're living in sin? Maybe you're not doing something that you ought to do. You're not uh, loving your wife or your husband as you ought to. You're not giving sacrificially. Uh, you're, you're not faithful in spending time with the people of God. Maybe your eyes are looking at things you shouldn't on the internet. And should it surprise us that in those moments that we don't sense a kind of distance that is growing between us and God? Now, here's the irony. God is omnipresent. There's nowhere you can flee from his presence. And yet sometimes we feel far from him. And that is, I believe, sometimes a working of the Holy Spirit. What about, not only am I living in sin, am I spending time in the scriptures? Am I, am I listening to the voice of the one who has called me beloved? Am I, am I listening to him? Am I searching out and studying the scriptures that culminate and climax in Jesus Christ so that I see more of him and who he is? Am I getting enough sleep? You know, sometimes a good nap is great for your spirituality. I recommend one this afternoon. Do I have a relationship that I ought to seek reconciliation? Sometimes we can't find that in this life. It takes Jesus to come back, but are there steps that I should take that I have not? Great thing to think about is we have communion coming later today. Am I spending too much time listening to critical voices that lack the hope of the gospel, that are really gifted in pointing out problems with God and others? but are not great at looking at the solution that we have in the gospel and the hope that we have and who Christ is? Have I convinced myself that God loves me less than others because of my circumstances or because of my past or maybe because of something in my present? You know, sometimes we 
fall into this trap where we feel further from God and we don't sense his love as much. And then in our weird, twisted minds, we begin to convince ourselves that that itself is a proof that God doesn't love us. When in reality, it might be our own heart or some of these other things that we're talking about. Are you too distracted by the things of this world? You know, you can be distracted by a lot of really good things that are really beams that should be drawing our attention back to the glories of Christ. But instead, we look at the beam and we love the beam. And we think the beam's good enough. We don't really need God anymore. We just, money's great. I love money. I I love my job. Look at the success. I, I like this. Now, it's from God, but I don't think I need to give God glory because this is just good enough for me. But that's not what you were made for. And you're dissatisfied. Notice that Paul reminds this church of the objective ground of God's love for them at the cross in verses 7 to 8. That's where he drives their attention. He says, look to the cross. Second, God proved his otherworldly love for us when Christ died for us. Now, Paul is offering in verse 7 a kind of illustration that is helping to demonstrate the nature of God's love. He says, essentially, humans rarely die for good people. Humans, they rarely die for good people. That's his experience. He writes in verse 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Now, some, as they look at this, they say that the righteous person is speaking of somebody who always does what is right, somebody who is respectable because they keep the rules. And and the good person, they would say, is actually different. It it describes a person whom we might love, like a spouse or a child, because they are good to us. So the, the explanation here of what this verse means to them would be, rarely someone dies for someone they respect. I mean, it happens, but it's a super rare thing that we take note of. And maybe a little less rarely you hear of someone dying for someone they love, someone who's good. I think it's more likely that the righteous person and the good person are are really the same person here that's being spoken of. But either way, I I think that Paul is making his point clear. In fact, I think that songwriter Brian Adams might even be able to help us understand Paul better. Some of you are thinking, I never heard that before, Brian Adams doing exegesis. But here's what I mean. Brian Adams Uh, If you don't know him, uh, you should have gone to a junior high dance in the 90s. But he wrote that really popular song from the Robin Hood movie, Everything I Do, I Do It For You. Anybody ever heard that song? Okay, you should someday turn a radio on if those things still exist and you'll hear them. But at the climax of the expression of his love for this woman, he declares his love for her with this refrain. I would die for you. Like he says a ton of stuff, but he keeps on repeating like when he has nothing else to say, I would give my life for you. I would die for you. That's the extent of my love for you. Now, that makes sense, right, in this song. I mean, apparently she's beautiful to him. He says there's nothing he wants more than this woman, maybe a little bit idolatrous. But that song spent four months on the top of the charts in the United Kingdom. It it has not been topped since. And why? It's because the world aspires to having a love worth dying for and singing about. See, the world gets that. But in verse 8, Paul says, 
that's a worldly kind of love that makes sense. But I want, you to, I want to point you to an otherworldly kind of love that doesn't make sense. Notice he says, God proved his otherworldly love for us when Christ died for us in verse 8. It's a notable and rare thing for a human to lay down his or her life for their spouse or child. But verse 8 says, but, but God shows his love. By contrast to human love, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now that word for show, interesting word, it means to provide evidence of a claim, to prove something or to show it. Now don't miss this. Paul tells the church in Rome that God proved his love for them and that while they were still sinners, Christ died for them. Now up to this point, if you're tracking along, you'll notice that Paul said Christ died for us while we were still weak in verse 6 and ungodly, sinners in verse 8, and he's going to go on to say in verse 10 that he died for us while we were enemies. See, Paul's highlighting the otherworldly nature of the love of God that is put on display at the cross, where Jesus did not die for righteous people or good people because there weren't any. All sinned, all were unrighteous, all were under God's wrath, all were destined for the greater coming eternal wrath that has been stored up for the last day. But God, God proved his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, God's love is otherworldly in, in a number of ways. And, and we could talk about all of those. I mean, for one, God's love is different than ours in its immensity. I mean, if you think about the overwhelming nature of an infinite God who is love in perfection. Uh, there, is no, there is no brim or bottom to the love of God. In fact, Puritan Samuel Rutherford wrote a book where he was considering the love of God and has letters where he, he meditates on the love of God. And he writes this. He says, every day we may see some new thing in Christ. Every day. If you're going to the Word and you're living out the gospel, every day something new with Jesus Every day. That's not the kind of thing you get bored with if you're meditating on Christ and living for Christ. There are plenty of resources in Jesus to stir your affections. If our affections aren't stirred, it's not, it's not a problem with him. It's a problem with us. In fact, he goes on to say, his love has neither brim nor bottom. Brim is that point when a fluid is, is, is rising. And it's about to overflow. It's reaching its tipping point where it's about to just pour out. And he says, there is no brim to the love of God. You'll never get to that point. Just keep going. And if you think, oh, well, maybe if it doesn't fill up to the top, maybe it'll like overflow in the bottom. And he says, no, there's no bottom. There's no bottom. It is fathomless. You will never reach the bottom of the love of God. If you want to consider the love of God, there is no way for us as finite creatures to even begin to scratch the surface of the glories and majesties of God's love. It is different than our love in its immensity. But there's something else to the otherworldly nature of the love of God on display here. Something that is humbling in a way that 
I hope that you have all been humbled and continue to be humbled as you come to the reality of the gospel that we find at the cross. It's a part of the cross and God's work that so many people want to edit out of the songs that we sing. We don't want to sing about the blood of Jesus or the cross and the fact that Christ died for us. It's because we don't want to come into close contact with the reality that we are sinners, ungodly, helpless, and enemies of God left to ourselves. God would have been just to punish us in his wrath. Here's the the second thing that we see about the love of God that is so different about his love. He loved us as the murderous rebels who killed his son. He loved us then. He would have been just to pour out his wrath on humanity at any point, at any point. But he has poured out his boundless love upon us as is proved by the cross where his wrath was satisfied. Now someday, my boys, I I imagine, I I pray regularly for their wives, that they will be godly, that they will love Jesus, that they will love them and their families. Pray for that very regularly. And I know that there's going to come a day when my sons, probably one by one, are going to come in and they're going to say, Dad, we want to marry this woman. Probably, hopefully not the same woman. Now, my daughter Mia, we've already agreed she's not allowed to get married, so we don't have to worry about that with her. <laughs> but I don't imagine them excitingly telling me, hey, Dad, we found, a, we found a woman that we want to marry. Let me tell you about her. She is weak, ungodly, known as a sinner, and an enemy of God. Real keeper. No. From a human perspective, that doesn't sound like the description of someone you want to give your life for or give your life to. That sounds like the description of someone who maybe should be locked up. But God showed otherworldly love in that he loved us while we were unlovely. I'll be honest with you. If you really understand the nature of who you are apart from Christ, then there is something beautiful and glorious, and you know truthful about that. You know that you might want justice for others, but when you come to God, you want something you don't deserve, his love that you've done nothing to merit. And there is something life-giving about that, to know that that's the nature of the God that has called you to himself in Christ through the cross. Jesus said in Luke 5, 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. There are no righteous people, and if you are righteous or think that you have a righteousness that can compel God towards you in any way, then you are not yet ready for the gospel. Jesus came for sinners, sinners to come before him in humility and declare their need for him. And that's good news for us. That's good news that Jesus came for sinners. Catch what that means. Every once in a while, I hear someone say, They need to get their life straight in order, and eventually they will come to church and get things right with Jesus. Once these other things are cleaned up, once the house is clean, they'll come to Jesus. But don't miss this. Jesus died while you were still helpless enemies of God. He said, you can't clean it up enough to come to me. The harder you clean, the the dirtier it's going to get, because then you're cleaning it with like self-righteousness Clorox or whatever. Like, you need me. The cleanest thing you need, it only comes from Christ. There is only one baptism for believers. There is only one line to the baptismal waters, that for sinners saved by grace and grace alone. 
There is no baptismal line for pretty good people who God is excited to add to the team and then the others. So do you want a remedy to that sense that you are far from God and perhaps fear that God does not love you? Spend more time looking at God's word and meditating on God's grand display of his love for sinners at the cross. Listen to other people share their testimony of how God drew them and, and be in awe by the, the various ways that people has called, God has called people to himself. I've heard testimonies of God calling people to himself whether they were high on meth uh, while they grew up in a Christian home and didn't know that they didn't know the gospel, God still saved them. Like, it is beautiful to see the various ways that God saves sinners who are trusting and looking to anything but him. Hear the voice of Charles Spurgeon as you're trying to stir your heart's affections towards God. He says, abide hard by the cross and search the mystery of his wounds. How? Why? Would an infinite perfect, fully joyful, a God who experienced perfect love in the Trinity itself, why would he display mercy and love on a finite creature, enemy and rebel like me? It doesn't make sense according to human logic, but he says this, an increase of love to Jesus and a more per perfect apprehension of his love to us is one of the best tests of growth in grace. And it only comes by looking to and studying the mystery of Christ's wounds. Now, sometimes we speak of love as irrational, as though it is this thing that we just kind of give ourselves to without thought. It's something that we can fall in of and out of. But notice that Paul is drawing a logical conclusion from God's love displayed at the cross. Third, the logic of the cross gives birth to assurance. That's what he says in verses 9 to 10. It gives, it gives birth to assurance. You'll notice he begins in verse 9, since therefore, and, and that therefore is there for a reason. I'm sure you never heard that before. But Paul is drawing a conclusion from Christ's death from us, and in these verses, verses 9 and 10, Paul is arguing from the, the greater display of the love of God displayed at the cross, he's arguing from that towards the lesser thing that God can do, which is give us assurance about the last day of God's wrath. And he, he highlights this with two realities. Uh, one is justification and the other is reconciliation. First, justification in verse nine. He says, since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now, Paul first uses this judicial image here and says we've been justified by Jesus's blood. He's, he's highlighting the sacrificial nature of Jesus. And you're like, well, how do I understand the sacrificial nature of Jesus? Well, read the Old Testament, and that'll tell you about the sacrificial nature of Jesus. Jesus died in our place on the cross to assuage or satisfy God's just wrath for sinners. Jesus died to save a people for himself and make those sinners righteous. And this is highlighting the reality that guilty sinners now stand in right relationship with God. Now, here's how I think the logic works, okay? Hang with me. I think Paul's saying, if the amazing otherworldly love of God 
did the greater miracle of making sinners righteous and put them in right standing with God, then how much more confident can we be that that love of God will also save us from God's just wrath on the last day? I mean, God's going to finish what he started. Our future has been secured by the, the blood of Jesus. It holds better than Gorilla Glue. He's not going to let us go. He has stuck to us in Christ. Paul's not done, though. He considers another aspect of what the cross accomplished in verse 10, reconciliation. He says there, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Reconciliation, that actually is highlighting here another aspect of what the cross brought about. Those who were formerly enemies of God, by faith in Christ who died on the cross, are friends of God. Now here's how the logic works here. If God did the greater thing of reconciling us to himself by the death of his son, while we were still enemies, how much more confident can we be that he will do the greater thing of saving us from the future wrath of God by his life, given that he is already poured his love on us, and given us his spirit in verse 5. How can we not trust that he is going to finish what he has begun? Jesus defeated death when he was raised up from the dead as the possessor of eternal life. And it is by that life that we can be sure that we are friends of God in Christ forever. He will never let us go. Now see, Paul, I think here, is working from the logic of the cross, to an expectation of salvation on the last day where God's just, is, uh, just wrath is going to be visited on unrepentant sinners. He, he's working from the cross to the future. And he's assuring Christians that they are in right standing with God if they put their faith in him. And they are now also friends of God. God initiated that before we desired to save ourselves. He, he initiated that before there was anything lovely in us. What is so amazing is that justification and reconciliation, uh, those are promises of blessings that were given to Israel. And here we find that this Jew and Gentile church of people who have put their, faithful, uh, their faith in Christ can say, this is true for all of us. You are straight with God if your faith is in Jesus Christ. You are good with him. God is your friend in Christ. Isn't that good news? That, that Jesus is your friend. Have you ever believed the lie that Jesus is not your friend? Have you ever started to believe that Jesus is not for you? What do you do when you begin to believe that maybe your sin or 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 your bad experiences that you didn't even bring upon yourself, or maybe Morse code of the reality that, that Jesus really isn't for you. How do you fight that? Look to the cross. Be reminded that the full love of God has been put on display, and that God sent his son to die for you. That is confirmation that your status on Facebook has changed to in a relationship. You are a friend of God. You're no longer an enemy. You have God who is for you, no matter where you are geographically, 
If you are in Christ, God is for you. God's not a fair-weather friend. He's not going to leave you hanging on a good day or a bad day or the worst day ever. He is always with you and for you. God is the best kind of friend. Everything that you love about any friendship that you have, whether good or bad, they, they, all those things, all those things pale in comparison and only point us towards the greater friendship that we find with God. And of course, he's more than that as our father and as we are his children, but he is not less than the friend of the people of God. He stands next to his people to the very end. So let me ask you, what, what do you do when you're not feeling a relationship? I'm just wondering. What is your natural tendency? Is it to, to bolt? Like, I need to, I, need to, I need to get out of this? Is it like, you know, I need to, to get away, maybe find one of those Southwest tickets or something and fly somewhere far away? Anybody ever had that dream of just getting in a car and like riding until the, the road ends? I just need freedom. I don't know where to go. I just know that it's not here. I think the natural human response is to quit, to run, to move. It's not to abide, to seek Christ's face, to pray, to meditate, to be still and know that God is God. Feelings are important, but our faith is grounded in the fact of God's love at the cross, not feeling. In fact, liberals in the 19th century, like Friedrich Schleiermacher, they actually found that people were stopping, the students, the intellectuals were stopping believing in the gospel because they found like dinosaur bones and they were like, you know, I just don't know. We've never seen somebody be raised up from the dead. I don't know if we can really trust in that kind of thing. Sounds like myth. So instead, what we need to do is explain to our students that our faith is not based in fact. It's, it's based in feeling. We're just trying to give you kind of a feeling of the presence of God. Well, that is the heart of, of liberalism that says that feeling and fact are actually separated from one another. Now, I'm not here this morning to say that what you need is fact and no feeling. What I'm saying is that the facts should actually stir your feelings, not the other way around. But we need to look to the fact of the gospel and of the cross as the anchor of our soul. And, and we need that to be the thing that stirs our hearts rightly towards understanding the love of God and trusting him when our experiences all around us are bombarding us with lies that say that God does not love us. Paul tells us that when we're not feeling it, we need to take a deep look at Christ. We need to change our geography, not our religion. We need to look to the love of God on display at the cross. The cross of Christ gives birth to assurance in verses 9 and 10. It's assurance that Christ will hold us fast through the wrath of God on the last day. And if Christ will hold us on that day, he will hold us every day from now till then. See, when past sins try to convince us that God could not love us, here's how the logic of the cross works. We look to the cross where God demonstrated his love to us while we were still sinners and enemies. Our status has changed. We are friends in right standing with God. How much more can we trust that he's for us now? When we think to ourselves that we are fearful of seeking help with present sins, you need to be reminded that God befriended sinners in the first place. 
He started helping you with this sin. He did it finally, climactically, and he continues to help us with our sin until he perfects us ultimately, removing our sin as far as the east is from the west on that last day when he returns. And when life is so full of suffering, you, you might wonder, does God love me? Here's the logic of the, Christ, of the cross. You remember that God has already demonstrated his otherworldly love for you by sending you his son, whom he loves eternally and infinitely, to die to save you from your sin. And when you fear that your faith is not strong enough to save you, look to God who saves those who can't help themselves. When you feel fear that you're facing death alone, remember that God is your friend and that Jesus lives. He lives. He, he never leaves you. Death does not conquer the love that he has for you. So when we consider the logic of the cross and what it means for our futures, finally, verse 11, it ought, if we're rightly thinking about it, it ought to cause us to boast in God, to rejoice in him. You'll notice in verse 11 that Paul could be responding to just verses 9 to 10, that we've been reconciled and justified. Or he could be pointing all the way back to verses 1 to 10, which I think he's doing. And he's He's considering all of those things that are ours in Christ. You'll remember in verse 2, it says that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, speaking of the future. But here, in verse 11, Paul says this. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now this verse carries a, a kind of doxological tone to it. It's, it's worship that is springing forth. The word for rejoice here is, is actually the same word for, for boast, to boast in. And you'll remember that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. In Romans 1, the, the problem that all of humanity had was that they did not honor God as God, and that's why they were deserving of God's wrath. So let's carefully consider again why Christians should be hopeful, both in good times and in bad, according to Romans why are we boasting? What has he built up for us to this point? Well, one, God displayed his love for us by raising up his son on the cross to make us right with him while we were still sinners. Amazing love. Two, the cross declares that he will complete what he has begun in rescuing us for the coming wrath of God. Praise God. Third, verse five, God poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit and the love of God lavished on us. Man, that is praiseworthy. See, our theology of the cross ought to work out into doxology if we're looking rightly at the cross. That reality, it ought to compel our hearts to hope in God in both good times and in bad. That's why Paul says that we ought to boast in him. But how do we boast in God? You know, what, what practically does that look like? Well, I don't see any edges around this that are firm, so I think that you're free to boast in God in all the ways that you want to in every situation in your life. But I would note that if you're wondering if your heart is 
in a place that maybe is not sensing the love of God, there are some indicators. One indicator is, is that you're critical. You're critical about your life. You're critical about others. You're critical about your job, your church, your spouse, your child. There's just a, a trend of, of criticalness. It's grumbling that kind of hums through your existence. It's not the beautiful sound of boasting in the God who has shown such amazing love to you that if we've really meditated on, begins to take over the nature of how we talk. And as our talk begins to slip into grumbling, it, it's that anchor that, that sort of jerks us back to, but man, what, what love has been shown to me? See, God calls us to hope and boast in him. How do we do that? Well, when Christians confess their sins, they boast in God who reconciles sinners to himself by the power of the cross. Do you, do you see that? Even in confession, we are boasting in a God who doesn't throw away sinners, but loves them. When Christians share the gospel with non-Christians, we boast in a God who can save anyone. And we say, like, anybody can get in on this deal. That's boasting in God. When you encourage other Christians struggling to trust in God, you are boasting in God. When you boast in God in times of plenty and in want, good times and bad, you show a contentment that trust in God's love on display in the cross. When you sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, when we do that collectively, we are collectively boasting in God. Charles Wesley wrote some 9,000 hymns including the hymn, And Can It Be? And, and I love this song because it actually begins and ends like these verses do. In stanza one, he begins, And can it be that I should gain an entrance in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love! How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? But then he gets to stanza five, and he says this, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Do you, do you see that? He moves from the cross to a sense of assurance, no condemnation for any more. And then he boasts in song about this. In fact, we're still joining Charles Wesley in boasting in God. See, Christian, you can be captivated by the grand gesture of God's love for you. Now, if you're not a Christian, you are still a sinner, ungodly, weak, and an enemy of God. But here's the good news. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, who died for you, for your sins, and was raised from the dead, then you are invited to be a friend of God, to be in right standing with God. Your future can be, will be, incredibly bright in Christ. So don't leave here without putting your faith in Christ and talking to me about it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we prepare for communion. Pray with me. Father, this morning we come before you praising you that you have lavished your love on us. And Father, we pray that now you would prepare our hearts as we go to the table, a table prepared for those who were once enemies and rebels, but now are friends and sons of the living God. Lord, bless this time we pray. Amen.